1: The first two episodes of Heather's Don't Stop for Monkeys are available now. Go listen, subscribe, rate, and review. Go to don'tstopformonkeys.weebly.com or search for Don't Stop for Monkeys wherever you listen to podcasts. Pass it on. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Let's say you're interested in the history of the University of Oxford. And why shouldn't you be? I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but even a public school Yankee like me knows that Oxford is one of the most prestigious schools in the world. A cursory googling shows some notable alumni. Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair, Boris Johnson. That's actually the most ignominious list I can imagine. Actually, every British prime minister in living memory went to Oxford, with the exception of Gordon Brown if you consider Gordon Brown as having been a prime minister, which is a comment I'm pretty sure most English listeners will find amusing, but please let me know angrily on Twitter if not. A thick handful of my favorite people attended Oxford too. Philosophers Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, novelists Graham Greene, Aldous Huxley, scientists Robert Hooke and Edwin Hubble, not to mention one-third of the membership of Monty Python. Beat that, Yale. Let me try that line again. I gotta get some more stink on Yale. Beat that, Yale. That's better. It's not Yale's fault it can't compete. Oxford is, after all, the oldest English language university in the world. And since you are interested in its history as we previously established, you might ask, how old is it? Go ahead, ask. The University of Oxford is so old... It's so old that the date of its founding is hotly debated among historians. The absolute most conservative date is 1249, when William of Durham bequeathed the creation of a master's program in theology. Now, in the 14th century, Oxford itself claimed that it was founded by King Alfred the Great sometime in the late 800s which pretty much everyone agrees is total bull hockey, but as a lower bounds, it illustrates the problem. The possible founding date of the University of Oxford is a spread of more than 300 years. There is a logical explanation for this, basically that Oxford wasn't so much founded as it did grow out of the weeds. King Alfred's probably bullshit claim to its founding isn't that he gave the school a charter or built a building or anything like that. It's that he once had a debate with some scholars on the site. Does that count? Or do you wait until they start conferring degrees? Or keeping dormitories? The other problem with pinning down a birthday for Oxford is that whenever it was, people in Great Britain weren't doing a lot of writing, and less still of that writing was being preserved. So you, since you are so interested in the history of Oxford, you pretentious little prick, you have to be content to grab a handful of dates from the few existent records left. I hope that doesn't come off too aggressive. (laughs) That's really aggressive reading. For instance, you know that in 1231, it was officially designated as a university. In 1214, there's a mention of the school's chancellor, so it definitely had one of those then. There's record of an international student, Emo of Friesland, in 1190, and two years before that, historian Gerald of Wales gave a lecture. So that gets us back to 1188. But we can leap another century, if you like. Luckily for us, there is one really thorough and excellent source of British history dating back all the way to 655 AD. It's called, variously, the Croyland Chronicle, the Crowland Chronicle, the Historia Crolandensis, or the Chronicle of Ingulf, for its author, the Benedictine abbot of Crowland Abbey between 1087 and 1109. In a land and time largely devoid of accurate history, Ingulf's writings were a blessing. While they mostly focus on the life and times around Crowland Abbey in the east of England, they give a lot of useful information not just about the traditions, peoples, and thinking of that time and place, but plenty about the larger religious and monarchical worlds that surrounded Ingulf and his abbey. And it's worth saying for your sake, you lover of Oxford, that Ingulf says he read Aristotle there in the 1080s. So... Oxford wasn't just some cowpile, a road stop for kings to bicker with local professors at. By the 1080s, it had a library. Not just any library, either, but a library containing our old friend, fucking Aristotle. If you're really into Greek classics, or the European Dark Ages, or if you just remember back to our episode on light, vision, and flat-earthism from last year, Reductio ad Absurdum, you might understand how spectacular this library is. After the fall of the Roman Empire, Europe lost access to most Greek texts, including Aristotle. European scholars, such that there were European scholars, who were interested in Aristotle, such that they were interested in Aristotle, usually had to make do with partial bits of his work, translated through several languages, and either bartered for or purloined from Arab and Persian scholars. It wasn't until the Fourth Crusade and the sacking of Constantinople in 1204 that most Europeans started to get direct access to the original text, except for the University of Oxford, which, according to the Historia cro was lending copies out to Ingolf 130 years earlier. And if you're starting to sense that there's something wrong with that, you're not alone. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, it's all a lie. In 699, a monk named Guthluk moved to Crowland, then called Croyland, either to live a vow of poverty or in search of great hidden treasure, which is a pretty dumbfounding set of options. It's like saying, Bob moved to Hackensack, either to practice medicine or commit mass murder. At the time, Croyland was more or less an island, a dryish hill in the midst of soggy bog, and Guthlack dug out a little hovel from the side of a hill where he lived, wearing only animal skins and, says his biography, taking only a scrap of barley bread and a small cup of muddy water each day after sunset. Aside from subsisting on impossibly meager rations, Guthlock spent his time battling demons, which he understood because he had lived among the Celts for a while and apparently demons spoke Celtic, and performing miracles, like shooting sugar gas out of his mouth as he died and prophesying the future. One of those prophecies was that Ethelbald would be made king of Mercia, on being told the prediction, Ethelbald promised that if it came true, he would build an abbey in Guthlock's honor. It did, and so Ethelbald kept his word, beginning the construction of Crowland Abbey in 716, two years after Guthlac's death. Which is how we get to Ingulf, taking over in 1087. Ingulf was a secretary to William the Conqueror, back when he was doing his eponymous conquering, When the previous abbot of Crowland died, William was king, and Ingulf was named to the post seemingly as a reward for work well done. Abbot Ingulf's tenure was pretty much the sort of thing you'd expect for an 11th-century monk. The library burnt down, he rebuilt it, he collected a couple of holy relics, the arms of St. Wolfram of Sens, the body of Wythoff, Earl of Northumbria, probably some others. He drank a lot of fortified wine, and developed a lot of gout, And he wrote one of the best and most thorough documents of the British Isles for his lifetime, the Historia Crolandensis. It's hard to overstate the historical importance of the Historia. As books you're unlikely to have ever heard of go, it's pretty high up there. It formed the basis for much of the works of William Dugdale and Henry Spellman, who in the 1600s were largely responsible for collecting and deciphering the history of medieval Britain. The Historia was particularly valuable for understanding the workings of the Catholic Church, its monasteries, abbeys, cathedrals, bishops, and so forth, in England from the 7th to 11th centuries. Maybe most important was what Ingulf's Chronicle told readers about the early form of the crown and church in England. How were bishops and archbishops chosen in Britain before William and his Norman Conquest? Scholars knew that after that, King Henry II and King John in the 12th and 13th centuries used a rule called conge de l'air, or permission to choose, which allowed the local diocese to elect church leaders, provided the king approved. The Crowland Chronicle showed that this tradition predated the conquest, that the Anglo-Saxon monarchs of England also had final say and gave permission for the appointments of bishops. Which, if you were interested in the early history of Christianity in England, would be very important knowledge. But we've already established that your interest is in the history of the University of Oxford. So what's important to you is that Ingolf was reading Aristotle there in the first millennium, more than a century before the Crusades brought his writings to Europe. Which, we've also already established, is suspicious. It's not the only thing about the Historia that cocked eyebrows. Ingulf also mentions Trinity Bridge in its pages. Trinity Bridge was originally built over the River Welland sometime before 716 when King Ethelbald mentions it. And it still stands today, even though the River Welland was rerouted in the mid 1600s, about a half mile away from the bridge, which has just been sitting in the middle of a street now dry as a bone for the last 350 years. It's called Trinity Bridge because it has three spans that meet in the middle, forming a sort of flattened pyramid so that people could cross to the northwest, northeast, or south from one bridge. How convenient. And if you're thinking that that sort of bridge sounds pretty sophisticated to have been built in 716, then let me remind you that you're supposed to be interested in the history of Oxford, not bridge building. Please try to stay in character. But also, you're right. The three-way stone bridge that today sits in the middle of a roundabout in downtown Crowland was built between 1360 and 1390 and replaced some unknown number of previous wooden bridges, including the one Ethelbald talked about. Yet, according to the Historia, it was around for Ingulf to see in 1087. Something else. According to Ingulf, a suspicious number of monks at the Crowland Abbey lived... suspiciously long lives... Most of them lived into their hundreds. One to the ripe old age of 148. The more people looked, the more there was about the Historia that didn't quite add up. There were dozens of little anachronisms, vocabulary words and place names that shouldn't have existed when Ingolf was writing back in the 1090s. Most of them, instead, pointed to a time three or four hundred years later. Historian William George Searle put the mystery together in 1894 when he published Ingolf and the Historia Croylandensis. Searle trained his eyes at the late 13 and early 1400s. At that time, the Crowland Abbey was very different from the ascetic mud hut of St. Guthlac. In 1384, a Northampton merchant filed a charge against the head of Crowland, Abbot John, and his monks. The merchant said that the monks had lay in wait for him on the road, and when he passed, jumped him, and took him prisoner. They locked him in their dungeon under wretched conditions. For the price of 40 shillings, they said, the monks would ease the conditions of his imprisonment. For 200 pounds, they'd let him go. All right, grumbled the merchant. His friends organized the 200-pound extortion payment, and in the meantime, he forked over the 40 shillings so that they'd give him some bread. Once the ransom was paid, they demanded another 300 pounds from him personally that they would hold to make sure he didn't go to the authorities, which, of course, he did anyway. There's no record of the resolution of this affair, but I don't have high hopes for our merchant friend. Even for the cynical, which is to say, me, the idea that a Benedictine monastery would turn into an organized kidnapping and protection racket is Pretty surprising, but times were tough in 14th century Crowland. Guthlock had dug his demon hole on a small, muddy island, surrounded by marshes and low-lying rivers, the most useless and undesirable land he could have possibly chosen. But over the centuries, drainage and damming had changed things. The soppy fens were being transformed into fertile pastures, and everybody around had greedy eyes on them. Local lords, rival churches, even King Richard II. Whether the monks of Crowland moved to organized crime to protect themselves from these threats, or whether their crimes merely reflected the gimme-gimme morality of the day is beyond my ability to say, but either way, it's pretty illustrative of the kinds of steps they were willing to go to, either to protect or enrich the Abbey. They defended against the claims of King Richard, as well as Duke John of Gaunt, by producing charters for the abbey written by kings Ethelbald and Edred in 1393, but their greatest threat was a rival monastery, the Spalding Priory. Spalding Priory had been founded in 1052 by Lefric and Lady Godiva, who, fun fact, was a freedom rider who didn't care if the whole world looked. Really Targeting my key demographics with that joke. Anyway, from its inception, Spaulding Priory overlapped with Crowland Abbey, and in 1413, their dispute came to a head in a heated series of land disputes, which Crowland Abbey finally won by... Producing Ingulf's History of Crowland. Hundreds of years of detailed history, the keystone for understanding medieval English Christianity, and, I know this is the part that you care about, the origins of the University of Oxford. All of it, Searle showed, had been manufactured wholesale by an unknown monastic counterfeiter to settle a real estate spat. Oxford didn't have Aristotle, England didn't have Conge de Lair, and Crowland didn't have Trinity Bridge. Everything scholars thought they knew from Ingolf was a lie. The Historia Crolandensis is a particularly detailed, baffling, and consequential medieval forgery, but it is by no stretch alone in the field. In writing about Crowland, and other such crimes, in 1919, Professor Thomas Tout remarked, In the simple Middle Ages, there were only two great classes of society which really counted. There were the knightly, or warrior class, whose business in life was to fight, and the clerical or priestly class, whose special function was to pray. It is hardly going too far to say that homicide was the special misdeed of the former, and forgery the particular peccadillo of the latter. Few self-respecting gentlemen passed through the hot season of youth without having perpetrated a homicide or two, and it was almost the duty of the clerical class to forge. If it did not always commit culpable forgeries for its own particular interest, it forged almost from a sense of duty for the benefit of the society, the community, the house whose interest it represented. It took until nearly the 20th century to fully uncover the Crowland forgery, and decades longer to wring out its influence from historical narratives. But scholars, historians, polymaths, antiquarians, and other so-called men of letters had been stumbling upon documents that ranged from the curious to the impossible for hundreds of years before then. The overwhelming amount of forgery and fraud in the historical record led some people to wonder if history was simply unknowable. Descartes went even further than that. He came to believe that the study of history could be worse than useless. In his Discourse on Method, he wrote, For conversing with those of other ages is about the same thing as traveling. It is good to know something of the customs of various peoples, so as to judge our own more soundly, and so as not to think that everything that is contrary to our ways is ridiculous and against reason, as those who have seen nothing have a habit of doing. But when one takes too much time traveling, one eventually becomes a stranger to one's own country. And when one is too curious about what commonly took place in ages past, one usually remains quite ignorant of what is taking place in one's own country. Philosopher and best bud of Molière, François de La Mothe levaillere went even further in his treatise, Judgment on Ancient and Principal Greek and Latin Historians, of which we still have a few works, in which he argued that written history was so festooned with bias and forgery that we should give up trying to work it out at all. Levaillère thought that the passions of anyone who attempted to study or put down history were all-consuming and insuppressible, so that the only way to avoid making our understanding of the past even worse than it is now was to stop reading and writing about it entirely. Even Vayer's wasn't the extremity of opinion, though. There was one man who took all of this confusion and frustration to its natural conclusion. And then, uh, seven or eight degrees further than that. It's all a lie.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
1: The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. Send a message to your counselor at any time and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors specializing in trauma, relationships, depression, grief, and much more. And since it's available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash the Want to learn
0: how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Kat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media.
1: When Blaise Pascal was just nine years old, he wrote a treatise on vibrating bodies. Eleven years later, when he was just 16, he produced Pascal's Theorem, which states that if a hexagon is inscribed in a circle or conic, then the three intersection points of opposite sides lie on a line. His understanding of math and science was so astute that René Descartes, among others, suspected his father, a tax officer named Etienne Pascal, was actually behind them. But Marine Mersenne, who was the main character of Three Years of Sundays, our episode about prime numbers from way back at the very beginning of the show's life, when the microphones were bad and the fact-checking was somehow even worse, examined Pascal and concluded he was the real deal. Like Pascal, Minot Drouet drew suspicions in 1955, when some of the eight-year-old's poems were privately passed among the French literati. They assumed her mother was the true author, But Drouet proved herself by composing a poem live in front of a panel of critics from the French Society of Authors. Samir Nakamura played her first professional go-match when she was ten. Mozart gave his first concert when he was four. Jean Ardoin was like them, a prodigy. But for books. He was born in Quimper, on the very northwest tip of France, in 1646, The same year, Pascal fell in with the Catholic splinter group known as the Jansenists, which may or may not come up again later. Remember it for the test. Jean Ardoin's father was a printer and bookseller, which surely fed his prodigious love of the written word. We don't know much about his early years, but he was impressive enough that he was allowed to join and study with the Jesuit College de Paris in 1660, when he was just 14, after graduating, he remained there, teaching philosophy, letters, and theology, and eventually being named the college's library. Finally, he ended up as librarian at the nearby La louis le grand one of Paris' most prestigious universities. Like the Oxford of France, since you're so interested. When you hear the word librarian, you might be thinking that Jean Arduin just stocked shelves and shushed giggling teenagers, and what the hell is up with you for thinking that? Librarians are highly skilled, highly trained, valuable members of our society. Do you realize that librarians have to order and systematize documents in dozens of different ways simultaneously to keep information accessible and flowing to many different interest groups at once? They have to be teachers, researchers, customer service experts, managers, administrators, curators, procurers, and human computers all at once? Didn't you know that to be qualified as a librarian requires a very rigorous and difficult master's degree in library science? Well, maybe you would if you paid a little less attention to that stack of Oxford history books and a little more attention to the person who brought them to you, you inconsiderate jerk. In Jean Arduin's time, the job was better appreciated. Librarians, libraries, and even books themselves were very different things than we're used to. Books were rarely printed in such substantial numbers that you could expect to find any particular one at any particular place. Many documents existed in only one original copy, with perhaps some second-hand reproductions made up for distribution. Libraries weren't just home to unique documents, but also other antiquarian items, like inscriptions, coins, and other artifacts that presented valuable first-hand evidence of other places and times. Any library worth its salt had what was called a cabinet of curiosities, filled with furniture, taxidermied animals, historical relics, paintings, baubles, sculptures, machines, and anything else valuable, rare, and deserving of study. The librarian was the master of all of this. They had to be both expert and gatekeeper, studying not only what their books and coins and whatnots were and where they came from, but also who should have access to them. It was, at a glance, a rocky time for sharing. The Wars of Reformation were dying down since the Peace of Westphalia, which brought an end to the Thirty Years' War by recognizing Catholicism, Lutheranism, and Calvinism in the Holy Roman Empire. But Catholics and Protestants didn't suddenly turn chummy. Smaller wars and skirmishes, not to mention massacres, bubbled up fairly consistently, and even short on those, it's not like Huguenots and Catholics were dancing in the street together. There was plenty of tension within the Catholic Church, too. Not just between the mainstream sects like the Benedictines and Jesuits, but also with splinter groups like... Who remembers? The Jansenists, that's right. Good job. Not you, Brian. Besides the religious differences, there was also nationalism to contend with. Everybody hated the British, but everybody really hated the Germans, but everybody really hated the Spanish, but everybody really, really hated the French, but everybody, everybody hated everybody. It should have been a very bad time for science and history and art and philosophy, all of which were intricately and intimately tied to the churches. But a couple of things acted as buffers. In the early 1600s, a group of mainly English natural philosophers, led by Robert Boyle and Francis Bacon, began sharing information, thoughts, writing, and criticism with one another in what was referred to as the Invisible College. Soon enough, their correspondences spread across the Channel to Switzerland, Paris, and beyond. In the 1660s, the Invisible College lost its invisibility and became the Royal Academy. The academy was a place for promoting science and math, sharing new ideas, and creating and performing experiments. And it was open transnationally to anyone who proved themselves worthy. Royal academies quickly became all the rage, springing up across Western Europe, and that spirit of cosmopolitanism abided in all of them. Whether you were Austrian or Dutch, Jesuit or Calvinist, the Academies believed everyone, provided they were rich, upper-crust elites, of course, deserved access to knowledge. The Academies were especially popular in Paris, where scholars had their choice of the Académie Française, the Académie de Science, and the Académie d'Inscriptions et belles la where our guy, Jean Ardouin, hung his hat. But we will get back to him. The other thing that had changed in academia was the invention of the printing press, Printed books and pamphlets could not only be disseminated more easily, but also required good relationships with printers and publishers, many of whom lived across borders and denominations from the authors they were working with. Authorship became more important, since ideas could now be easily disseminated, and authorship became more profitable, too, for the same reason. And one of the best ways to prove that you were the writer of a certain tract or book was to make sure that you had shared drafts with other thinkers. The further away they were, both geographically and ideologically, the greater currency their word would have. Altogether, these factors helped form the Republic of Letters, a loose, pan-European brotherhood of academics, philosophers, authors, scientists, antiquarians, and librarians who openly shared with one another, who had long-standing correspondences, and who were dedicated to engaging civilly and constructively with each other's ideas, no matter who, or what, they were. Jean Arduin was very much a homme de monde, a man of the world, a citizen of the Republic of Letters. In spite of what we'll soon see to be a very strict and stringent version of Catholicism, he worked closely with thinkers across Europe, and even opened up his French Jesuit library to young English Anglicans for study. And, as decorum dictated, his peers treated him with the same generosity, seriousness, and conviviality. Even after they began to privately wonder if he was insane. Before the possible insanity, though, was the definite prodigiousness. His first printed work came just a year into his tenure at the library of La Silhouette le Grand. It was a collection of writings by the philosopher Themistius, a 4th century Aristotelian and prefect of Constantinople. In Jean's edition, he managed to find 13 new speeches from Themistus. The Republic of Letters was impressed. Arduin had managed to pull work lost for an entire millennium into the present. But it was his next big project that really turned heads. In 1685, he produced a five-volume edition of Pliny the Elder's Natural History, complete with commentary and appendices, it was commissioned as part of an effort to provide the French Dauphine with an exhaustive and definitive copy of every classical text. Arduin's edition of Pliny included 20 manuscripts and 600 pages of brand new indices of his own invention. It was the sort of task that might have taken a whole team of librarians 10 years to compile. Arduin had done it by himself in just five. The Republic of Letters was dumbstruck, Arduin didn't take a moment to bask. He published more and more, not just transcriptions and translations, but examinations and treatises on ancient coins, epigraphs, and inscriptions. He put together thorough and remarkable chronologies of the ancient world, of the books of the New Testament, and of the lives of early Christian figures. Piecing together the past was, as we've explored, a thing of great controversy in the moment. How could the ancient texts of the Greeks, the Romans, the early Christians be trusted when they had passed through hand after hand and tongue after tongue. Arduin and his contemporaries had come to an answer. Coins, medals, and inscriptions, physical pieces directly from their historical moment. They were crafted for the very figures of the past scholars were interested in, and struck to commemorate moments, people, and events without the embellishment of hagiography or the gradual creep of myth-making. By cross-referencing the coinage, and artifacts of the appropriate eras, Arduin could confirm or dispute the texts before him, and he did so ruthlessly. After his edition of Pliny made him famous in every academy and journal on the continent, he was asked by the French Jesuits to help compile a full history of every Catholic council. When Catholic scholars before him had been given such a task, they tended to add to one another notes upon notes, forwards upon forwards, hypotheses upon hypotheses. Arduin did exactly the opposite. He cut and carved and struck, line after line, footnote after footnote. Anything he couldn't confirm as 100% historical was dropped. Granted, his final product still took him many years and still ran to a mind-boggling length of 22,000 pages. But those pages were clear, concise, and controversial. He had stripped away whole piles of scholarship, favoring a view that the Holy See was the only authority upon whom could be trusted. Arduin's history of Catholic councils was a radical document, so much so that it was suppressed by the Jesuits for a decade before they finally okayed its release. But secretly, he was already working on a different idea that he knew would be a thousand times as difficult to sell. It first occurred to him in 1690 when reading the works of Augustine. Augustine had been the bishop of Hippo in North African Numidia between 395 and 430 AD. He was easily the most influential of the early Christian church fathers and his philosophy and apologetics on topics from original sin to divine grace to predestination informed basically every Christian doctrine to come after him. Except that Jean Arduin began to suspect that his writings were fraudulent. The Historia Crolandensis on steroids. Over the next few years, he cross-checked Augustine's writings against everything Augustine had referenced and everything that referenced Augustine. And by 1693, he had detected what he called the Whole Fraud. That year, he published a short treatise on coins of the Herodian dynasty, an unquestionably dry topic, right up until the point at which Arduin plopped in his big idea. I will adduce in this place the conjecture of someone never given to idle conjecture, but who is now possibly more suspicious than he should be, and indulges his cleverness too much. Let each person take it as he will. The critic I refer to has found out, as he lately whispered in my ear, that a certain band of fellows existed some centuries ago who had undertaken the task of concocting ancient history as we now have it, there being at that time none in existence, that he knew their exact period and workshop, and that in this matter they had as aids the works of Cicero, Pliny, the Georgics of Virgil, the satires and epistles of Horace. These alone the critic considers, as I fear he will find it hard to persuade anyone else to believe, to be genuine monuments out of the whole of Latin antiquity, apart from a very few inscriptions and some fasti. I'm not sure whether the severity of that paragraph is immediately apparent, so let me go ahead and make it clear. In the middle of this boring article on ancient Hasmonean coinage, Jean Arduin just came right out and said that everything, everything, let me emphasize once again, Everything written before the 14th century, with a very small handful of exceptions, were counterfeit. Invented. A scam. Augustine? Hoax. Dante's Inferno? A lie. Fucking Aristotle? Fucking bullshit. You name it, Arduin thought it was fake. The Iliad and the Odyssey? No way. Oedipus? Nuh-uh. Agamemnon, the Metamorphoses, literally all medieval writing? All of them phonies. Sometime around 1230 AD, Frederick II, Holy Roman Emperor, had gathered some untold number of Benedictine monks together and provided them with a task, to create all of history. They had a lot of old coins and inscriptions to work with, along with the very small number of authentic texts available. Pliny, Cicero, one poem by Virgil, and two pieces by Horace. And so they just went from there building a library of thousands of books, many of which, quite cleverly, were designed to cite and reference one another. They also pressed forged coins to back up some of their forged documents. All of this was done, Arduin said, in order to pervert and destroy Christendom. In that first treatise, Arduin didn't do much lifting to explain how or why such an extraordinary thing might have occurred, and he offered essentially zero evidence or argument beyond saying that he had been told about it by an unnamed scholar who, I'm going to go out on a limb here, was Jean Arduin talking to himself. Two months after Arduin's treatise was printed, the rector of the College de Paris went to the publisher and had every copy confiscated and repressed but the Republic of Letters wouldn't have it. Arduin's friends and detractors alike urged him to explain his position in depth. As it turned out, there was an almost bottomless death to go into. There was not some single silver bullet that put the lie to the myth of all Western history. Instead, each and every document, from short monastic observations to sweeping epic poems, was exposed by different means. Take the Aeneid, for instance. Virgil's great epic poem couldn't have been written by Virgil, Arduin said. Compared to the Georgics, which he assumed to be genuine, the Aeneid struck him as a total mess. Some of the lines were enjambed, others read as forced and illogical. Arduin also argued that the Aeneid violated Aristotle's dramatic unities and contradicted Homer's depictions of the gods. These were weird criticisms, since he considered Aristotle and Homer to also be forgeries. Dante's Divine Comedy was a hoax, Arduin argued, because in it Dante noted Thomas Aquinas' canonization and Ludwig the Bavarian's entrance into Rome, even though neither event happened until well after Dante's death. Which does seem pretty convincing, except that while Aquinas is in the Divine Comedy, he isn't called a saint. And while the book makes mention of a Scipio and Liberator, whom Arduin assumed to be Ludwig, Dante never mentions him by name and probably was referring to the Emperor Henry VII. The Jewish historian Josephus, whose writings provide the best view of first-century Judea, the fall of the Temple of Jerusalem, and make up most of the non-biblical accounts of Pontius Pilate, John the Baptist, King Herod, and even Jesus himself, put an asterisk there for later, was a phony too. Arduin concluded that through his belief in the illuminating power of coins. Josephus said that Herod restored the temple of Jerusalem and that Antipas, ruler of Galilee, was a member of his family. But if those things were true, Arduin thought, there would have been coins around to prove it. Somebody would have struck a medal commemorating the temple and somebody would have written Herod Antipas on Galilee's money. He didn't know of any cash meeting those descriptions and so, obviously, Josephus was a fake. Maybe the worst fraud of them all was the one that had first caught Jean's eye. Augustine. The father of Christian philosophy was, in his estimation, a heretical atheist, impious and evil. The line that most stuck in Arduin's craw was Augustine's famous prayer, "O Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Which, as jokes go, has aged better than just about any other. Arduin did not find it funny, to put it mildly. It was unthinkable that one of the great founders of the church would have been so glib. He went on like this, and on like this, and on like this. Aeschylus and Sophocles, most of Horus, all of Euripides. They were fakes, because they used vocabulary that he didn't expect. Or because they seemed to him to presage the crucifixion beforehand. Or because he thought the names of characters sounded funny. Because the Aeneid wasn't real, obviously any stories mentioned within it, and any books that mentioned the Aeneid, were also hokum. So there goes Ovid and Juvenal, and Tacitus and Servius, and nearly every early Christian author. Eventually, he went so far as to denounce entire languages. There was no such thing as Aramaic, for instance, it was just garbled Hebrew. And the whole Bible, he figured, had originally been composed in Latin and then mistranslated into Hebrew or coined Greek or the phony baloney Aramaic. The conspirators hadn't just written every book in Western history and falsified a couple of rich ancient languages, though. The writers had been aided by throngs of mathematicians, astronomers, lawyers, doctors, poets, numismatists, and scholars. Every text had to line up not just with one another, but with the practices, artifacts, beliefs, laws, and even the eclipses and comets of their moments. But every once in a while, they got something wrong. And when they did, Jean Arduin found it. Another proof he was right. Why, precisely, had Frederick and his endless cavalcade of nefarious Benedictines gone through this literally impossible amount of trouble? For a while, Jean wasn't sure. But soon enough, he began putting it together. He started to notice a code within the fake names littered in every text ever written until the 14th century. It was a prophecy foretelling Jesus' return when the Messiah would massacre the Jewish people as punishment for having killed him. And on one hand, yikes. But on the other, I think that that is the longest a conspiracy theory has ever gone before it turned anti-Semitic. So that was one goal of the worldwide cabal, which Arduin called the atheist sect. The other purpose was almost the exact opposite. The code was meant to be deciphered to give people the truth, but the bulk of the lift was accomplished in order to lead people away from the truth. It was about creating a grand tradition of heresy, from the lewd, unchaste Augustine all the way back to the ancients. The ancient counterfeits from before the time of Christ were the worst. In both Jewish, Roman, and Greek texts, Arduin saw indications of the crucifixion. The names he objected to as fake were puns and portmanteaus about Jesus, all concocted to make people think that Jews and pagans had knowledge of the Messiah before he arrived. If that were true, Arduin thought, then there would have been no need for Jesus to come to Earth and do all his fun fish-and-bread stunts in the first place. And if the people came to believe that, they would reject the church and descend into mortal sin. At this point, if you do not suspect that Jean Arduin was crazy, then... well... good work, actually. I mean, I don't blame you if you think something was wrong with this guy. To the modern, psychiatrically attuned ear, it sounds like he suffered from apophenia or some variety of psychotic delusion. But that really doesn't seem to be the case. Nobody at the time says anything about him behaving erratically, and his writings, bizarre and wrong-headed as they are, are entirely internally cogent. His skepticism about classical writing never spilled over into the letters he received from his compatriots in the Republic or his fellow Jesuits, and while he had plenty, Plenty of critics. His theories, as wild as they were, were taken seriously and given due consideration, even if people mostly rejected them in the end. I mean, the thing is, he wasn't wrong. Remember Crowland, folks, or the founding of Oxford. Or hey, let's go back finally to that asterisk we placed around Josephus. Of all of Josephus' writings, the part that people have been most interested in for the whole time they've been around is a passage in his Antiquities, which reads as follows. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him, and the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. This paragraph is called the Testimonium Flavianum, and it is one of the only places in all of recorded history that mentions Jesus outside of the biblical New Testament. It's also the only text about Jesus that was written by someone who was alive to see him at the time. It's not clear when or by whom the Gospels were written, but they were certainly not written by the apostles whose names they bear, and the earliest of them, the Book of Mark, almost definitely wasn't composed before 70 AD, that's nearly 40 years after the fact. But the testimonium is bunko, I mean, look, There are historians and theologians who will stand up for it. And their arguments are totally without merit. So if it's really interesting to you, you should look into it for yourself. But I have a podcast and I say it's fake. Fake, fake, fake. So who are you going to believe? For one thing, why would Josephus, a Jew, call Jesus the Christ? That makes no sense. And why would he say that this Christ rose from the dead after three days? If he had seen and believed such a thing, wouldn't he have become one of the Christians he describes using the word Christian, which definitely didn't exist when he was writing? Not to mention that the testimonium doesn't show up until Isubius, a Christian apologist, quotes it sometime around 320 AD. The fact is that just as Descartes and Hobbes and Spinoza were concluding at the same time as Arduin, lots of written history was falsified. And while Arduin thought coins and medals provided an antidote to that problem, he showed a real lack of imagination there, because coins and medals they're pretty frequently wrong too. They're cast as propaganda, or in advance of events that don't end up going as planned or going at all. They're even made as jokes, or satires, or pranks. Arduin was seen as an extremist in his time, for sure. But his extremity existed upon an acceptable and not totally incorrect branch of thought. And so his theories were only cast aside if and when they could be thoroughly dismantled. For some, that time never came. While Jean Arduin may have been the first person to conclude that everything was a lie, he's far from the last. That's next time on Part 2. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, Kevin MacLeod, Yarkob, Joyun Park, I Solitski, Paplin, and Marcus Staub. Special thanks go out to our Patreon supporters, especially Monica Neeson and David Hirsch. If you'd like to join them in making this show possible, go to patreon.com slash the constant. Our website is constantpodcast.com, Twitter is at constantpodcast, and our Instagram which is lovingly maintained with a non-stop barrage of related images, quizzes, and fun facts by none other than Heather Chrysler herself, is at The Constant Podcast. Speaking of Heather, be sure to check out Don't Stop for Monkeys, either at don'tstopformonkeys.weebly.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and while you're at it, give me one too. The Constant is a part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to the first and oldest continuous podcast, Open Source with Christopher Leiden. On the latest episode of Open Source, Chris, novelist Leslie Epstein, and film critic A.S. Hamra look back on the most famous American movie ever made, Casablanca, a wartime propaganda Hollywood puff piece that also managed to center immigrants and fight fascism nearly 80 years ago. Go check it out. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, which John Hodgman has repeatedly and lengthily asserted does not actually exist. This has been The Constant. Go back to Oxford, Brian.